it, it kind of occurs to me that there may be pressure not to conduct uh, sick building or you know moldy building research from the folks who build buildings. Yeah, there's a considerable amount of pressure and that pressure comes, as you might guess, from the Center for Disease Control. They have a very vested interest in uh, not seeing this very expensive problem come to public light because there's a lot of schools, a lot of businesses out there that are going to be affected. So the CDC did their own investigation of, of toxic mold and they found out exactly what they didn't want to know in 1994 and they buried it using paralysis by analysis. They essentially stated the same thing they did for chronic fatigue syndrome, that, well, nothing is conclusive at this point. Further research is needed. And then they proceed to never do it. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm your podcast host, Scott Simpson. In part two of my interview with mold warrior Eric Johnson, he tells about the lengths he's had to go to to get and keep himself healthy. Eric terms his approach extreme mold avoidance and that involves a modified and mold-free camper vehicle and also mapping and then avoiding areas and buildings with high levels of toxic black mold. Eric has been relentless in his efforts to bring awareness to the public, patients and researchers that toxic mold is a potential element of chronic fatigue syndrome. Yet there is resistance by the Center for Disease Control, by researchers, and by the medical profession to consider or acknowledge how unseen toxic mold in our workplace, public, and home environments may be making many people very sick. As you will hear Eric explain, there has been incredible pressure to hide the impact of toxic mold on human health. Eric also shares how the derogatory label of chronic fatigue syndrome reclassified an entire illness from an infection illness diagnosis to the all-in-your-head insult. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and any other podcast platform. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. Have you had your own experience with medical error? Are you living with a chronic illness? If you need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, 
here is part two of my interview with mold warrior Eric Johnson and a note that some people may be disturbed by Eric's experience with the healthcare system. The sole point of, of redefining the disease was to put distance between chronic fatigue syndrome and the original entity that it was based on to help keep it in maximum confusion. Uh, okay, so the Holmes definition emerged out of the 1984 outbreaks. Um, and then they, there was this move toward a psychological narrative. So they did the 92 Fukuda a definition of chronic fatigue syndrome, which, like you say, separated it from, the, from its origin. And it also loosened up on the psychiatric exclusion. The uh, Holmes definition was very, very clear on that. Must be excluded. And the Fukuda said, well, it's not, not likely. Uh, so that's how the policy got twisted. Uh, so what was going on in your life between 84 and 92? Well, when I saw the strong correlation between reactivity to mold and this illness, I uh, proposed to Dr. Cheney that while he was working on finding out whatever the viral part was, I would concentrate on studying the mold factor. And that's exactly what I did. Now this um, outbreak was the subject of uh, an abstract that you see on my poster here. This is the um, 1994 a study by Chester and Levine on the association between concurrent sick building syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, epidemic neuromyasthenia revisited. 95, you say? 1994. 94, okay. So the um, evidence was gathered earlier, but this is when this abstract was finally peer reviewed and, and published. And what it represents is a study done on the clusters of illness, especially Truckee High School, which is clearly delineated in this abstract. It speculates on why this particular cluster of teachers had reactivated Epstein virus from which they could not recover. And then it goes on to mention several other clusters, such as one in Elk Grove, which is near Sacramento, California, where the same exact malady seems to have merged in teachers in a sick building. Well, when I studied this, this toxic mold, it took me several years to find out specifically what kind of mold was involved, but it was Stachybotrys charterum, the dreaded black mold that you read about in the news all the time. And it was a simple matter to call up the teachers down at Elk Grove that were the subject of this other abstract and find out that they'd been exposed to the same toxic mold that was such a factor in, in the inception of the chronic fatigue syndrome. So by this time I had decided that um, the toxic mold not only was a critical cofactor, but it was a documented one it could be easily established and factored into the, um, the syndrome criteria so that anybody who gets a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome becomes a putative mold reactivity patient. And we can find out if they have this, this strange reactivity, and if so, instruct them on how to avoid mold and reduce their symptoms. So. I immediately uh, started trying to identify the, the worst places in Incline Village for these, these biotoxins, the toxic mold, all the bad buildings, the places in the sewer systems that uh, affected me in this way. I uh, created a map and I would work my way around town to avoid it and I was starting to recover. In fact, by the time the uh, Dr. Cheney left town, I was recovered to the point where I was a lousy representative for the illness, and I told him so. 
that if anybody comes to ask me, I won't even qualify because I'm out walking again. My, co my recovery is spectacular. And I decided that I could maximize my recovery by spending more time out in the local, the nearby desert. Here we are on the edge of Nevada. We've got a lot of desert, no mold. So I'm spending my time out there and being an ex-hang glider pilot, I was eager to get back into aviation. And I was hanging out at a small airport where they were flying ultralight aircraft. And my goal was to get back to, into the air flying a, an ultralight. And one day I see a um, crazy man out raking <laughs> in the hot desert sun this 700 foot dirt airstrip with the handrail. And I go, this guy is crazy. What on earth is he doing? And I look over, there's a tractor equipped with a rake that's obviously for this job. So I thought, this, this guy's crazy in the sun. I've got to go out and help him. So I, I walk out and I point toward the tractor and I go, I'm sure they'd let you use it. And he gave me the funniest look. And I could see the wheels were turning in his mind. It's like, okay, do I just make up some lame excuse or do I spit out my story? And fortunately for me, he decided to come out with the truth. He said, well, you see, I've got this strange, strange illness. I'm from Incline Village, Nevada. And the doctors tell me I have chronic fatigue syndrome. And I come out here and I do this because it's the only thing that helps. And I go, my God, we were both out there from Incline Village doing the same thing for the exact same reason. Wow. And our results were so spectacular that we started telling other people. And I began taking people to the worst places in town, showing them what the sensation was that was affecting them in this way. And... Um, they could make a determination for themselves whether they want to um, become mold avoiders. And this is how the chronic fatigue syndrome history mold tour began. <laughs> okay. And I've taken many prominent people on this, this tour, uh, like Julie Remeyer, the science writer, author of Through the Shadowlands. That's how she became a mold avoider. I took her right up to the, the doorstep of uh, Truckee High School, where there's still a little bit of the effect left over in some various other bad places around town. Uh, Jennifer Brea, the documentary maker, Unrest, same thing. She came to Incline Village, completely unaware that she might have a problem with mold. And right there, within a couple hours on the beach of my explaining to her, she decided that she indeed was a mold avoider and this is how she was going to conduct her life. That's right. I think part of her documentary unrest, she sets up a tent in the backyard of their home to avoid mold. Exactly. And the curious thing for me is in all the times that people have watched that documentary, I've never seen anybody inquire about that afterward. Uh, there's enough information about toxic mold now that one would think that a researcher would see that to go, well, why are you doing this? What exactly are you doing and where did you learn this from? So I've been to screenings of unrest and I've actually asked uh, top researchers at these, these screenings, what did you think of that? Why do you think she's doing that? And so far we haven't been able to drum up any interest, but I'm still hopeful. So how do you figure uh, Jen Brea's sensitivity to mold interacts with her subsequent uh, neck surgery that relieved, I think, a lot, if not all, of her symptoms? Well, this particular toxic mold, Stachybotrys, is one of the most powerful natural neurotoxins known to man. It is essentially like nerve gas. So it's neuroinflammatory. 
So repeated exposures cause uh, neurological symptoms that are very similar to nerve agent. And it appears that the chronic inflammation from, from exposure puts enough stress on the nerves that they, the neural impulses, the electrical impulses in the nerves become inhibited and the nerves try to compensate by thickening the myelin sheath uh, to facilitate the, the neural impulses to restore function. So what you've got is an increasingly difficult obstacle to overcome of poor neural transmission and this uh, swelling caused by the myelin taking up more room as the nerves thicken. Now for a long time, they just assumed that these neurological symptoms were close enough to multiple sclerosis that we had demyelination of the myelin sheath. And it's only been recently that it was discovered that it was the exact opposite. There's a thickening of the myelin. So under the circumstances with the um, intracranial hypertension, with the neurological inflammation from toxic mold exposure, it stands to reason that there could come a point where the damage itself becomes the driving force. And I believe that's what's happened um, where people have the Curie malformation where the brain is literally trying to push itself out of the skull, elevated opening pressure on lumbar taps, and the, um, the leaks in the spinal fluid uh, of the spinal column. Does mold, and specifically the, the one that you've mentioned, which name I have forgotten already, uh, does it also, to your knowledge, cause breakdown of ligaments um, and collagen? which would contribute to the neck problems? I think that's a downstream effect of uh, chronic inflammation. I think over years of being chronically inflamed, that um, that's, that's a secondary effect and explains why only a subset has it. But um, I went along for a number of years getting pretty good results with mold avoidance. And so how would you do that? What, did that? what does that mean for you to avoid mold? I'm picturing you in the middle of the desert? <laughs> no, actually. I um, didn't want to be in the desert. That's not a lot of fun. So I decided that I needed to develop some kind of strategy. This is why I made a map of the worst places in town. And I would um, check the wind direction so that when there was a, a storm, when the wind was blowing, I would not only avoid passing through the areas, these source points, these microbial colonies, but I would avoid passing downwind of them as well. So on one day, I might choose to pass on one side of a, like a sewer grate, and on the other day, with the wind blowing the other direction, I would go on the other side. So, if I couldn't um, get away from having to pass through these areas, I would take a shower and change my clothes afterward as soon as possible to try to get the spores and the fragments off me. And by reducing the inflammatory effect quickly before the, the constant exposure has a chance to cause a, cyto a cytokine cascade, an inflammatory response that runs out of control and takes on a life of its own, I damp down the information and really appear like a normal person. But I had to put a lot of work into it. And so what's your home like? Well, I had to find a, a home that was extremely free of this mold and to facilitate my ability to take a shower and take care of myself when I'm out running around doing things. I got a camper. In fact, I built a camper. Um, 
parts out of mold resistant materials so it would be completely reliable for me. So when I'm out on the road and I enter a bad building, I have a plan B. I have a means to decontaminate quickly. Oh, so your home and your camper are safe havens. Exactly. Okay. So about 1994, I wound up in a situation where I just kept getting worse. And I, for some reason, was not avoiding mold well enough. I wasn't getting the results. I was living in a place, I didn't understand it at the time, but really the entire area, um, neighboring houses, the sewer, it was bad. And it was subtle enough that it, it wasn't really sinking in how much trouble I was in. And I kept losing ground, getting worse and worse and worse. And I started going back to Dr. Peterson saying, this is getting serious, I'm falling apart again, and I really, I really need some help with this mold. And he kind of gave me an ambivalent answer, which lulled me into thinking that someday he would do so. But he was too busy with his, his uh, viral interests, and I kept getting worse and worse, until finally I was almost to the point of bedridden again, at which point, he diagnosed me once again as being the perfect case of chronic fatigue syndrome with active HHV6-alpha. It had reactivated again. So I was in serious trouble. And he said, and I believe that uh, your only reasonable course of action is to go into the antigen program, the experimental immune modulator that um, whips the immune system into high gear and helps control this. And I had seen that some people do have a really spectacular effect, good result with amplogen. And I was very interested in this. And when I was worked up for it, I was still ambulatory. I could still walk. The uh, hemispherics wanted only people who are completely bedridden, unable to rise up for their uh, fully funded amplogen trial. If you were capable of walking, if you could pass a treadmill test, you could be approved for the cost recovery program, but that was $60,000 a year. And I couldn't afford that. And because I've got chronic fatigue syndrome and insurance companies canceled my insurance, I had no recourse. So I proposed to Dr. Peterson that if mold avoidance has made this much of an effect to me before, that perhaps I could up my game. I could study this in even greater depth, improve my avoidance skills, develop a strategy of what I called extreme avoidance where I'd really try to maximize this to the best of my ability and see what kind of results I could get as I had no other options. And Dr. Peterson didn't think it would work, but since I couldn't afford the amplogen, I had nothing left to lose by trying. So that's when I got a camper and I drove out to the desert and I spent as much time as possible in the most barren, pristine environments that, that I could go to. And once again, it turned my health around and I started recovering. And within six months of what I call extreme mold avoidance, and that is using my camper to uh, pass through these mold plumes as quickly as possible, decontaminate right away, take all my contaminated clothing, get them outside so I'm not I'm not sleeping with them in my safe environment. Within six months of doing so, I'd gone from being approved for amplogen to climbing Mount Whitney. Wow, so folks who don't know where Mount Whitney and how big it is, tell me more. It's the tallest mountain in the connected USA, 14,500 feet, and it's a 25 mile hike. Wow. You, yeah, you climb, over a mile 
um, going straight up. Wow, how many hours did that take? It, it takes people about 20 hours to do this. Wow, so you're pretty healthy. 15 and 20. Yeah, it's not something a, a typical person with chronic fatigue syndrome would do. And that's why I did it. I thought this will be such a spectacular demonstration of walking out of the amplitude program and having a recovery like this that no researcher could possibly ignore it. Okay. <laughs> I'm a hyperchronic fatigue syndrome standing at 14,500 feet with no altitude sickness six months after walking out of the amplitude program. Very compelling. That's got to mean something. Yeah. So I started uh, going back to researchers, chronic fatigue syndrome doctors, and showing this to them. And the reaction was sort of, how nice for you? Like, how nice for me? This is a strategy that's based on the first clue that started this, this entire thing. It's, it's um, directly derived from the neurotoxic substance that was a factor in all the clusters of the mystery malady. And I proposed this while in an NIH study being conducted by Dr. Peterson. I, I explained before I did it what I was going to attempt to do, and I got results. How is this not compelling? Yeah, so how come they haven't picked up your ball? Uh, apparently, they don't want to. Yeah, how come? That's an excellent question, and I hope someday that uh, we can ask them directly. Yeah, I guess part of it could be they get married to their uh, construct of what chronic fatigue syndrome is, and it sounds like they're pursuing the viral route, and that's where they get their funding. And so well, When you look at how the syndrome emerges, it's after some kind of severe viral infection or a trigger of some kind. And the trigger gets the blame every time, no matter what the trigger is. It could be um, Coxsackie B, it could be HHV6 alpha, it could be Epstein-Barr virus. But the researchers focus on that trigger and start treating it at the cause. And fortunately for me, Incline Village is such a small town that I could look at people's movements and see that prior to this infectious onset, they did have this type of precursor mold exposure. Okay, so you've known in your construct what's been going on. And so I, I kind of know that you've been a, a strong advocate for this for a long time. Uh, tell me more about that journey. Well, from the um, moment the CDC announced that they intended to collate the elements of the chronic fatigue syndrome, which I knew because I was a part of that, I was a prototype. They were using my blood and my symptoms and my medical chart to base their new syndrome. I began contacting researchers that had been dealing with this apparent illness all over California and Nevada and explaining that uh, I am a prototype for the chronic fatigue syndrome and I might be able to clear up some details about it. And I was amazed that I never got a positive response from any of them, not one. And by the time the 1988 Holmes definition was published, I realized that this was more than just a scientific endeavor, and it was more than just um, clarifying the very interesting toxic mold phenomenon. This was also some kind of sociological investigation. It was a study into the behaviors of researchers to see how they could handle a situation like this. And that's how I approached it. I um, decided that the best way to conduct this, this study was to create a phrase 
It would be very innocuous. It would lay out my situation. And it would be the standard phrase that I would always use so that I could observe how researchers and doctors would respond. And the phrase is, uh, I am an inclined village survivor and a prototype for the 1988 Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome definition. And I can tell you about it. Would you, would you like to hear? And the results of my study are absolutely overwhelming. Never once in, in over 30 years have I had a positive interest response to those words. That's just so hard to fathom. It's, it's mind boggling. Yeah, I, it must, I'm just thinking, geez, it must really be for you so incredibly frustrating is not a strong enough word, but. Well, when Osler's Web came out, I had already realized that I was getting 100% negative response from researchers and that there was no interest whatsoever in following up on the Tahoe mystery illness. And I read that book and I couldn't believe it on page 25. Here it is, my outbreak, my phenomenon, my cluster in great detail. The teacher cluster is clearly described, my teachers right there, the ones I told about the mold at the time. They're all listed. And when I make my assertion that chronic fatigue syndrome has never been investigated, of course it sounds so unbelievable that people they, they, they doubt it. However, if you look at what those teachers asked for, what Gerald and Janice Kennedy specifically asked for when they approached Dr. Gary Holmes, what did they say? They said, something was in that room. It paid to get out of that room. And in your interview with Hillary Johnson, she talks about the disdain Gary Holmes exhibited towards these teachers. That meeting was described on page 49 where Gerald and Janice Kennedy sort of ambushed Dr. Holmes and they explained the situation in that particular room and told Dr. Holmes about the filters, the air filters, the infrequently changed air filters in that room. He didn't mention mold because at the time, every mention of mold got, well, that's just an allergy. So there's nothing of interest. So we kind of backed off from saying, okay, mold. We'll just say, well, look into the room. There's something in that room. Obviously it had to be in that room because the rooms next door, the people weren't sick. So just please look into that room. And Gerald and Janice Kennedy asked Dr. Holmes to examine the air filters on the basis that whatever substance was making them sick would surely be trapped in those air filters. And as it turns out, the evidence shows that it was the toxic mold Stachybotrys charterum. And what was done with that information? Well, the schools realized that they had a toxic mold situation and they hired remediators to clean it up. So the rate of illness disappeared. Uh, everything seemed to go back to normal. And the local people know about this. The remediators know about it. The teachers know about it. Even the doctors know about it. The only people who don't know about it are chronic fatigue syndrome researchers. So I went to symposiums of, of researchers and I said, well, I can not only take you to the spot and explain what happened, how this mystery developed, I can actually introduce you to the remediators who cleaned up this building and they can establish what kind of toxic mold it was because it was tested and they can explain this whole thing and clear it up. And that's where I ran into a bit of a problem because the school authorities don't want people to know about this. So they say nothing. They just keep silent. The teachers are fearful of repercussions from describing it. So they say nothing. But what about the remediators? Well, I asked them 
and they said, can't say a word. We've got a confidentiality agreement with the schools. So even if you ask us about it, we can't say a word. So the only person who has no vested interest and is willing to describe it is me. And it's all documented. It was in the newspapers. The very fact that these, these places were cleaned up and tested for stacky blockers is in the newspapers. Can you read that headline? The Tahoe Truckee Unified School District cleans up mold, plans to check other schools. They not only mentioned the schools that they checked, but the ones down in Elk Grove as well, where the other clusters in this abstract were described. So really clearing this up is a, a very simple and straightforward matter of doing a little basic epidemiology. Okay, so a couple of questions. Uh, how has your health been the last 10, 15, 20 years? I climb Mount Whitney every year to celebrate my recovery. Wow. Yeah, and I post it online. I show pictures that my recovery remains constant, that I've been able to reproduce this effect in other people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, okay, so tell me a bit about that, the other folks that you've helped. Julie Remar is the most spectacular example. She's the science writer, author of Prove the Shadowlands. And because she's so prominent um, and her story is so well known, it, it's as if once you saw her story alone, that should have been more than sufficient to get a full-on investigation into this matter because she wrote uh, an article for the Washington Post, what is chronic fatigue syndrome and why isn't more being done to study this disease? And in it, she describes how none of the treatments, none of the uh, therapies that Dr. Kalimas, the top researchers were prescribing for, had had much effect, but she had heard a rumor of these people, the mold avoiders, and she decided to come check it out. And she did come to Incline Village and I took her to the bad buildings. And within a short period of time of doing some of these basic strategies of mold avoidance, her post-exertional malaise had disappeared. She was out climbing mountains. And the very advocate who was writing about the PACE trial, how, um, the British psychiatrist had conducted a flawed study of chronic fatigue syndrome by graded exercise therapy. The very person who's most well known for writing about the subject had managed to address her own post-exertion malaise problems by mold avoidance. And it was in this Washington Post article. So if we have a direct intervention that makes such a difference in the syndrome, this really needs research. When did Julie write that uh, New York or the Washington Post article? When? Yeah. I believe that was uh, 2015 period. And what impact has that had in terms of mold research? None whatsoever. No, no researchers responded to her, to me, or to look into mold whatsoever. That's so, an inverse negative response. What is the state of mold research generally? Uh, you sh uh, had that one uh, research from 94? Um, yeah, this wasn't um, into mold specifically. It just delineated the fact that there was a connection between the sick building syndrome and the, the chronic fatigue syndrome that needs further research. That's clearly spelled out in the abstract. So to my way of thinking, if I show somebody this abstract and say, well, research has been done and a neurotoxic substance which directly addresses the situation has been identified in these very clusters, then we can proceed to 
resolve this matter and make this information widely known. Now, uh, stachybotrys has, has been studied quite a bit, but this is only known in the mold community, not in chronic fatigue syndrome circles. So it's like we've got parallel worlds going on where now people who might otherwise be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome are being diagnosed and treated for mold illness. And the two sides aren't connecting the dots. Silos. It, it kind of occurs to me that there may be pressure not to conduct uh, sick building or you know moldy building research from the folks who build buildings. Yeah, there's a considerable amount of pressure, and that pressure comes, as you might guess, from the Center for Disease Control. They have a very vested interest in um, not seeing this very expensive problem come to public light because there's a lot of schools, a lot of businesses out there that are going to be affected. So the CDC did their own investigation of, of toxic mold and they found out exactly what they didn't want to know in 1994. And they buried it using paralysis by analysis. They essentially stated the same thing they did for chronic fatigue syndrome that, well, nothing is conclusive at this point. Further research is needed. And then they proceed to never do it. Wow. Uh, so it sounds like you've regained the ability to get back into flying. Yeah. How much of your life does that take up? Um, well, that's a very expensive hobby. And mold avoidance is a very expensive therapy because it entails um, having to avoid a lot of really bad buildings and run for my life and decontaminate when I do encounter these, these bad places. So that was enough of an interference that I could never make enough money to get back into aviation full time. I dabbled with it. I flew in ultralight for several years. I got my pilot's license but then it became too expensive. So I turned my attention to mountain climbing and uh, just basically spending my time out hiking. Wow. And so you, you still do a lot of advocacy work around mold. Tons of it, yes. How does that pay? Very poorly. <laughs> I haven't made a dime. Yeah, I, I go to Stanford. I go to the Open Medicine Foundation. I go to the IACFS ME conferences and I tell my story and I get to observe researchers as they take an active disinterest and do their best to make sure they never heard of this story. So what keeps motivating you after all these years and running up against the wall so many times? Well, it's like Hillary Johnson said, um, the politics are so amazing that it draws you back in. This is an impossible situation. It's, it's unique. And it's the sheer, unlikely, bizarre, unbelievable aspect that keeps sucking you back in. I just can't believe any of this happened. The, the medical and research professions have behaved in this, this manner. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels surreal and it would be hard to believe unless you, one has had experience with the medical system with a complex chronic illness. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's crazy making the way the whole system treats uh, chronic illnesses. And I believe that in order to fix this problem, it needs to be brought to light. The medical profession needs to be made aware that they just pulled off one of the most epic failures in their entire history. And perhaps the embarrassment will cause them to reconsider how they do their business. Well, we can hope for that. Uh, I maintain that someday 
hopefully sooner than later, Hollywood will take on the story and uh, that's when things will change once Hollywood does its number on it. Yeah, I don't think anybody will ever really believe or understand this complex, convoluted history until a movie is made about it. You read about it and it's like, I, I can't believe what I'm reading here. Yeah, yeah, it's, it sort of reminds me of the Flint, Michigan water thing, you know, it's just like, how can that be happening? Where are people's ethics, morals, we can see where their egos are. Yeah, well, my basic premise is that a serious researcher wants evidence and will respond to it in a favorable way. And that's why I developed this test. Now, if you think about um, the situation Ignat Semmelweis was in back in the 1800s when he invented hand washing. Sorry, say that name again? Ignat Semmelweis. Yeah, a Hungarian physician in Austria noticed that the um, two clinics, the birthing clinics, had a different rate of mortality. The midwives, the obstetrician's clinic, had a very good success rate, and the doctor's clinic had an unbelievable rate of fatalities from puerperal fever, childbed fever. And there had to be a difference between these two buildings because in all regards, the techniques used were identical. So how could one, how could the doctor's clinic have such a devastating effect on the patient population and the other one not? And his mentor, uh, another professor at this, this clinic, was doing autopsies on somebody who died of this childbed fever and he nicked himself. He, he cut himself during this autopsy and he passed away of the same illness. And this suggested to Semmelweis that something, what he called cadaverous particles, some agent had been transferred from the body to the surgeon during this slip up through the blood. And he instituted a policy of washing the hands with chlorinated lime, with bleach, which instantly reduced the mortality rate of the doctor's clinic. And there was the answer. The doctors were coming into contact with these um, cadaverous particles, while the midwives' clinic, who did not do the autopsies, were. Um, weren't exposed to them. And this intercession of using bleach to wash off these particles had removed this effect. He didn't know they were germs. He didn't know what this agent was, but he didn't need to. What he knew is there was an effect from one building to the next that required an investigation. And if you look at the origin of chronic fatigue syndrome, we had a very similar situation. Clusters of sick buildings, people getting sick in certain buildings, whereas they didn't get sick in other buildings. So the question for me was, in this modern age, would people respond, would doctors respond like a Semmelweis? Would they realize that the difference between one building and another requires an investigation into whatever it was it was happening in these specific buildings. And the results of my test indicate that no, it would not induce a response. There would be no scientific curiosity. In effect, there are no modern semmelweises in the chronic fatigue syndrome world. Wow, that's sad. So what's next for you, Eric? How are you going to move forward? What's your plan, strategy? Well, I've been using the uh, internet as a, a way to get past the researchers who don't want to see this information get out. And I've been 
spending a lot of time in groups, building up enough of a following that hopefully I can put pressure on researchers to revisit the incident that started the chronic fatigue syndrome and all this will come to light. Wow, that's uh, you've already put in a huge commitment for this cause, much to, you've paid probably many, many different ways. Um, and to still consider pushing forward, that's a real commitment. As Hillary Johnson described uh, Dr. Cheney, when he was in the middle of the battle with the CDC during the famous outbreak, he said, money can't buy a ride like this. this yeah. Is like the e-ticket of all time. Yeah, yeah, and you're on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It has been very edifying speaking with you. And I'm sure uh, folks that are listening will be equally edified and compelled to maybe look into if their symptoms are being caused by by mold. Great. Well, thank you very much for your interest. Well, thanks to Eric Johnson for his relentless advocacy to bring awareness of toxic mold to the public and researchers. Eric's healthcare and advocacy experiences speak to the strong financial influences that determine what is researched and what is not. Have you had your own experience with medical error? Are you living with a chronic illness? If you need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and any other podcast platform. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.